Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. This is our first show for November 2015. We've got some really interesting new things to talk about. And to do that, to do most of the talking, we need one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, geez. And all this week I've been taking classes in mime. Doesn't, doesn't work well for podcasts. <laughs> but I'm in a box, Lynn. I mean, it's a really good box. <laughs> All right, talking, sure, what the hell. All right, so, Jim, there's a couple of things that were announced today, and this is the, kind of the frustrating part about the podcast. You told me about them weeks ago, but it was one of those things where you said, the news gets out now, my source will be compromised, therefore don't say anything about it. And I'm talking about, of course, the new Club Villain ticketed event that's going to be at Disney's Hollywood Studios starting in January of 2016. This wasn't a huge secret. I, I want to say you guys over at the Walt Disney News broke when they were auditioning for this. I mean, that was in August. That was when we first learned that they were looking for a doctor facility mm -hmm. who could sing I've Got Friends on the Other Side, an MC, and a dancer. But nobody knew quite what this was for. They knew it was going to Disney Hollywood Studios, but not the location. And meanwhile, Disney's been building this black box theater, which was right next door to the, the rock and roller coaster building, the ride building. Everyone was sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak. And initially, there was people were intrigued because, of course, the studio has hosted two villain events. We had the Villains Unleashed, the first one that went down in September of 2013. In fact, it's part of the limited time magic event or that year long program. Then that one actually ran on. Friday the 13th and brought out, you know, 13 of Disney's big villains. Right. That one did really well. So the next year, here's another Villains Unleashed event. This one was in August of 2014, and they brought out 50 villains. 50, 5-0. 5-0. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You got into kind of a gray area. It was anything that, you know, had sort of been, you know, Stromboli. Sure, he's a villain. Get him out here. Go, <laughs> Stromboli, okay. Go into the back closet. <laughs> Do we still have the Radigan costume? Okay, put that out there. It did take them a while to come up with 50 Disney villains. Anyway, so everyone kind of assumed maybe this is this again, and it's not. In a weird sort of way, though, it does feed off of the key guest complaints that of these two hard-ticket park-wide Disney events. One of the things that Disney guest relations got hammered with was that the people who bought the tickets to these events felt like, A, because the lines were so long, they didn't get time with any of the villains, or they only got time with one or two of the villains mm -hmm. because the lines were so long. And also, the merch just disappeared instantaneously. So this club villain is being created to sort of address those concerns, that it's going to be another hard ticket. Mm -hmm. Again, got to stress here, folks, this is not a cheap hard ticket. This is $99 per person. $400 for a family four, in addition to the 100 bucks it takes to get into the park. So okay. $800 if this is your one-day thing. First of all, the limited number of tickets are going to be sold, and right now it seems to only be scheduled for Saturday nights. I'm kind of hoping that Disney ups the schedule. I mean, they just officially announced today. We're recording the show on the 29th of October. Mm -hmm. This was originally supposed to have been announced on Tuesday, the 27th. So it's kind of intriguing what the holdup might have been. Just finishing up the press release or something like that. There you go. For now, to just have this as a Saturday night, I think, seems kind of weird, especially given the cost of setting up this show. Right. You mentioned the press release. They're saying, as of right now, you'll get the chance to mix and mingle with the mysterious Maleficent, the hilarious King of Hearts, and the delirious Evil Queen, and the always fur-fetching Corella de Vil. 
But the entertainment for the show is going to be Dr. Vasilier. And there's but food, yeah. right? There's yeah. food and alcohol, although I think my sense is the alcohol might be uh, extra, right? Yeah, that's my sense as well. So the menu that they've posted today says tender beef stripling with herbs, a voodoo sticky pig wings. Chicken so, wings, okay, sure. Oh, I was about to say, when pigs fly, it's finally happened like <laughs> Spicy shrimp, some uh, Cajun food. Basically, which, of course, feeds into the whole Dr. Facilier thing. Sure. If you take the 40,000-foot view of this, there's a reason this went into the park. After all of this construction is done, this is the park where Disney's second hard-ticket Halloween event is going to go in. Okay. For example, just this week, the site plan for the new version of Disney Hollywood Studios leaked in the construction timeline. And they're starting January 2016 with a massive redo of this park. They don't anticipate being ready to at least bring phase one of it online till 2018. And I think that's the end of 2018, right? There you go. So do you think for this club villain thing, so first of all, you can't use your Disney dining plan for it. I understand the appeal. They've got to put something in the studios, right? A lot of the attractions are closed. They got to give people a reason to go to the park. Does it look like a naked cash grab? <laughs> <laughs> While you find the right words, let me point mm-hmm. out that uh, this week, a yeah. Disney survey went out to pass holders. And one of the mm-hmm. questions on it was, choose the phrase that best describes the Walt Disney Company or something like that. And one of the choices was, I feel the Disney Company is greedy. So they, they at least acknowledge that there might be some people with that sentiment out there. But going back to this, okay, so it's 100 bucks to get in the park or you know maybe yeah. a little bit less if you've got a multi-day pass. Not a lot of things open. A lot of things have closed. Mm-hmm. They've got to be cognizant of the, I hate this word, but the optics of mm-hmm. charging $100 for some food in a nighttime event when they're already charging a hundred bucks for a park with a lot of closed things. You know, and it's intriguing to me that they're actually out there surveying that point because think about it back in August, they launched the sunrise breakfast for the jungle cruise oh, out in California. Yeah. And that's $300 a person. All right. In fact, they're still doing that through December 2nd of this year. Mind you, you get a souvenir tribal mask. You know, they literally take you into the Jungle Cruise. You're eating in the scene with the lion. You know, they think, oh, look, the lion's protecting the zebra. And now he's protecting the buffet. This is Disney entering the Skybox era. And let's be honest, Disney's been in the Skybox era. It's just recently that they've begun to eyeball the notion of if we create these special character-driven events or character-driven venues, people will pay top dollar to get into them. I know this is anecdotal, Len, but I was at dinner on Monday night with friends who are young urban professionals. They work in the industry, they they make good money, and I was sitting there... They they work in the industry and they make good money? One of them actually works for the Disney company, so Uh, they are making good money. You know, on the Back of $100 tickets to Club <laughs> and $300 breakfast. Okay. Anyway, I'm sitting there with their mom, who's a friend of mine from high school, and was just mentioning you know, the price point of, you know, they're going to open this club villain thing, and it's going to be $100 a person. And it was fascinating to watch the generational response. The mom and I are both in our mid to late 50s, and we both like, ooh, $100. And on top of Disneyland admission, it's like, wow, that seems greedy. And the young adults, the 20-year-olds, the early 30s, instantly said, I'm going. I don't care. <laughs> Man, we're getting old. <laughs> it was just a notion of, wow, getting time with the Disney villains. And, oh, my God, yeah, of course. We just would roll that into the cost of a vacation. And what was interesting is these folks had just come back from Disney. And really? their argument was like, look, we just paid – 
to go to Victoria and Albert's. Now, mind you, it was where one big fancy meal yes. of the trip. They had some really interesting things to say about the other restaurants around the park. You could really eat healthy at Disney if you were paying attention. Sure. There's good fresh food and if you're a vegetarian or that sort of thing. There are options now. But Victoria and Albert's was their big splurge. And so the next time we go to Disney World, the club villain will be our big splurge. Ah. That mindset is out there, and Disney knows this. And in the Southern California market, where you've got upwards of a million annual pass holders who are always looking for bragging rights, so to speak. I did this first, or yeah. Yeah, I did the sunrise breakfast, and it was 300 bucks. but look at this wonderful mask I've got that I'm hanging in my foyer. Disney knows that this market is out there, of course. The very fact that that survey is out there suggests that we know you can tap into this market, but how do we deal with the PR problem that comes with that, the negative press overlap? That'll be interesting to see how they handle that. Absolutely. But again, just when you sort of step back and look at this, when you see how Disney is ramping up these character-driven dining experiences. I mean, think about it, Len. We've just in the past six weeks, we've seen Jock Lindsay's open at, yep, at Disney Springs. Disney Springs. We're a couple of weeks out now from the Skipper Canteen opening at Disney's Magic Kingdom. That's going to be and huge. You mentioned one more that might be happening, but I don't know if you want to say it on the on the show or not. What the hell? Let's let's. <laughs> in this case, I'm I'm a little more comfortable with doing this. Word has come down the pike that the Tomorrowland Terrace for years now has basically operated on a seasonal basis. There was a time there where they had that noodle-based menu. and It was it was good, but yeah. it was hard to maintain. You had to get there right when it opened and the food was fresh because they didn't really have the kitchen to keep anything going there. But it's a, it's a huge space, and it's prime real estate. It's been intriguing lately to see it mostly used for dessert parties and things right. like that. Well, evidently, on the heels of this sort of revamping of the Frontierland restaurant complex, you know, Tortuga Talent Tavern has just gone to a barbecue menu. Mm-hmm. We've just seen a change at Pecos Build. Tall Tale Inn and Cafe, that's gone Mexican. The belief now is we bring 5,000 more people in a day because of New Fantasyland, the changes we've made to the hub. We need more food service. And the new space, supposedly they're eyeballing, is Tomorrowland Terrace for an actual dining venue. I'm trying to get information about this, whether or not this will be enclosed. I'll look around and see if I can find the photo of this, Len. But Mm -hmm. when they did the original plan for the new Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom, this is the 1994 version, the future that never was, is finally here. Mm -hmm. What they did, if you you went to the white foam model that they had in the post-show area of the Walt Disney story, I mean, there are a couple attractions that didn't make it into the park. One was the Flying Saucers. They were going to gut the Carousel of Progress building and put the flying saucers in there. This is basically Luigi's flying tires and the thing they just closed at DCA to redo, but of course the classic Disneyland flying saucers. Mm -hmm. But on top of where Tomorrowland Terrace was built was a brand new restaurant called the Astronomer's Club. Sticking out of the building was a giant telescope. Supposedly the gimmick of this restaurant was that because it was next door to time to time. Uh, Timekeeper. Timekeeper, yeah. The idea was that every, you know, the timekeeper had actually thrown open the door and would bring great scientists from the age in. So you'd go in and you'd sit down and eat, and Leonardo da Vinci would be wandering oh, through the restaurant. Or Jules Verne would be talking about 20,000 Leagues. Oh, that's, that's, this kind of makes sense. Yeah, so it was going to be a, <laughs> you know, kind of an adventurous club idea. 
So they've looked at this. They considered this for a themed dining space before. And so just to think that 20 plus years after you know, they kick the tires of this idea sure. that it's, it's bubbling up again. The thing that was, that's in the space now where Timekeeper was yep. is, of course, Monster's Laugh Floor. But they could bring in monsters from Monstropolis Ooh. to effectively do the same thing, tell jokes, mm-hmm. comedy routines, take pictures. Not a bad idea. The one caveat I have with that, with just in August of the D23 Expo, we've had confirmed, of course, Star Wars Land is coming to the studios. Oh, and, right, right, right. Yeah. And we've got Toy Story coming in. But there are two parts of the Pixar thing that have not been revealed yet. One, of course, is the Cars Land thing that's been talked about forever with the indoor version of Radiator Springs Racers. That's but the studios, right? Yeah, but supposedly the other component is bringing the long postponed Monsters Inc. Coaster. They came within inches of 2008. And supposedly as part of that is bringing the Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor over to the studios as kind of a gimme attraction. I mean, that they could drop that quite easily. Oh, yeah, our, that's, that's pretty straightforward. They basically take the building they're putting Launch Bay in. Remember, we're only three or four weeks out from that opening. Yeah. Drop that in there and put the door hanger behind that. But I like that idea. The idea of a monsters-themed restaurant and, you know, just enjoy your spaghetti and eyeballs. So, <laughs> so. Or, or better yet, go with Harryhausen's from the first movie. You know, from, uh, a Disney sushi venue, you know. That would be funny. Yep. Other news that came out today, a few more details about Rivers of Light, which opens, we think, what, April 2016. A couple of details about what kind of entertainment is going to happen. And, and this was also a posting, a job posting. Mm-hmm. They're looking for, quote, contemporary and, quote, Bollywood style dancer and the dancers will serve as silent narrators orchestrating the action to convey the spirit of an ancient and timeless celebration. So essentially they're asking for interpretive dance. Mm -hmm. This bend in the river around Discovery Island over in the, the Asia section of the park. If you think in illuminations terms, it's very, very small. So this allows you for the first time particularly given that this is going to be a dance show that starts on stage, goes out into the water, has a light and projection component that also includes the Tree of Life. I mean, we've all seen the scaffolding that was up around the trees and the the lights that went in there. Because you're this close to the action, Disney feels for the first time they can do this sort of dance-based show For the first time, Disney actually listed in the auditions for this thing a choreographer. I I, I want to pronounce the name right. Ulka Simone Manhati. Yes. When's the last time you had Disney actually name a choreographer? Yeah, that was was super interesting. Taking a second here to Google her work. While you're doing that, the interesting thing to me was the setup of the beginning of the show where apparently these two shamans with their assistants come in and talk about or demonstrate the power of nature and, and stuff like that. And the assistants, I guess, are there to add visual interest to the proceedings. It's almost like Festival of the Lion King, where you've got the main actors, but then you've got all these support people around them. But in this case, they start off, I guess, on on the shore, and then they go out onto the river in lantern-like vessels. Yeah, it starts on the stage, which is facing Expedition Everest. There's also a couple of artificial islands they built, and these vessels will sail out onto the water. Again, rivers of light, lantern-shaped vessels. Mm-hmm. The show just spreads out from there, going all the way back to the Tree of Life. And right. Disney's quite serious about the Bollywood element of the show. I've just pulled up Ulka's bio, and mm-hmm. 
She is an Indian classic and contemporary dance choreographer. She's done a lot of Bollywood films. She's out there in the industry. So expect a different sort of Disney show. This is going to have a sort of ethnic feel that they just haven't gotten before. Kind of in the Asia section. I, I get that. Disney theme park shows can have kind of a sameness to them. Animal Kingdom being a distinctly different Disney theme park. They've decided to go a different way. And Disney held the auditions for a club villain or announced the auditions in August. Uh-huh. And they're starting their first performances. January 17th is that? January 16th, I think, is the first ever? Yeah, right now. So if we work that same math, Len, if we go five months. Yep. So if they're announcing the auditions. We're looking potentially at a five or six month window. Late March, early April. Of Rivers of Light going live. So it makes sense. Yeah. And understanding that this will drop and they're still plugging ahead with Avatar. In fact, a lot of folks now, thanks to the fact that the floating mountain is 143 feet tall, so you can see it from a distance. Folks are starting to see the vines put into place on that and getting a sense of how truly huge that's going to be. But again, that's the latter part of 2016. My understanding is that maybe toward holiday 2016, we'll see rides go live there. I haven't heard anything about 2016. I I thought for sure 2017. You think it's going to be earlier than that? Not to belabor the obvious, but... They need something? (laughs) Well, they really want to get this open sooner than later. You have to understand that December of 2016, Wet n' Wild closes. This is Universal's basically satellite water park. January 2017, Volcano Bay opens, Mm -hmm. and we just this week had the announcement of the Jimmy Fallon Race Across New York attraction. I can't believe they're taking Twister away. Bill Paxton was dead inside when he did that. He he was like, who's the lead singer of the Smiths? Like that, dead, completely dead inside. By the way, it was Morrissey. But you know what's killing me is that there was an original pitch for this attraction that was supposed to happen for the 25th anniversary. That was hilarious. The original pitch for this thing was that one morning people would walk into Universal Studios, Florida, and instead of the Twister marquee, there would be a bedsheet hanging off of the Twister marquee. The fine frat boy tradition had been painted on it. Jimmy Fallon attraction. All right. And you began to go through the queue of Twister, which was still the queue of Twister. <laughs> it's, hey, it's cheap. <laughs> All right. Well, no, that was the basic thing you were supposed to get the sense of is that Jimmy had broken in. So, for example, there were televisions. You know how they, they had the two different televisions for Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton? There was now going to be a third television added. Jimmy was in the very much of the style of the Twister attraction. And and then the monitors would come on and Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt were like, what the hell? It's like, wait a minute, this is our attraction. Oh, no, 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 no. It's just this really meta moment where through the entire queue, they're trying to set people up for Twister and Jimmy is interrupting. And then you enter the main hall of the attraction and it's just basically Jimmy taking all of the props and the effects for Twister and hammering together this attraction. But where this would have gotten truly, genuinely weird is that the whole conceit of the attraction was every night when Jimmy was actually taping The Tonight Show, they'd then go live as part of the show to the Twister attraction. Jimmy suddenly comes on a monitor and is talking to audience members there. 
and who's in my attraction and you know, are you enjoying it and it's like say yes make or don't make me throw a cow at you you know <laughs> it was one of these things where it, it sounded like such a wonderful idea but in the end they just realized there were so many nights i mean the tonight show basically tapes five or six o'clock in the afternoon in new york there's a lot of nights i mean for example this time of year when they're presenting halloween horror nights where yeah. the park closes at five and they sweep Likewise, there's a lot of times during the year when Universal Studios will shut down at 7. It was like, we won't get enough bang for the buck. It was a really funny gag. I mean, I, I love the bed sheet over the marquee, but it doesn't look all that professional. And in the end, they devolved back to this, let's go professional, let's, let's do this right. It's going to be much in the style of the games that Jimmy now does with his guests as a regular part of the show, only... Now you're an audience member. You're playing a game with Jimmy Fallon like they do in The Tonight Show. Anyway, back to Disney. With Universal committed to opening a new attraction every year for the next five years, there's just a sensitivity now. It's like, look, we have to pick up speed here. We have to get this done. In fact, that's, to me, what's intriguing about the site plan for, for Disney Hollywood Studios and the whole announcement of we will have this open by 2000, or so says the paperwork. We will be done by 2018. So are you'll be done with Star Wars Land and everything by 2018? That seems to be the plan, Len. So they're going to finish up the Avatar in 2016, which, so they're going to accelerate Avatar, and then immediately just move the bulldozers and construction workers over for 2017 and 2018 to the studios? I mean, that's it's possible, I guess. January of 2016, mm -hmm. this becomes a construction site. I mean, the walls go up. Oh, yeah. They flatten a lot of backstage. There's a lot of site prep that has to be done because you, you look at that plan. They're, mm -hmm. they're changing the entrance. That's you know, the, that was the thing that was the most interesting. And we had, we had talked about this on a previous show before they released these proposed interchanges. Mm -hmm. Disney had filed a couple of months ago some permits for rezoning wetlands. And we had looked at that and said, the reason why you would do this is to put a road in. And literally yesterday, day before, it came out that the new future Osceola Parkway Victory Way interchange is going right where that wetland uh, wetland was. And the, the thing about this that I really like about this is, yeah. if you think about where the entrances were for the studios before, you know, mm -hmm. you go in towards the front of the park and you sort of see the, the Tower of Terror, you know, if you're coming in off of uh, Epcot Resort Boulevard or whatever. Because the Star Wars stuff is in the back of the park, you would never have seen any of it. Mm -hmm. This fixes that. They are driving within half a mile and anything that's, that's big, they'll yep. be able to see. So the new Star Wars stuff is going to act like a beacon for people coming off the interstate. And that honestly is part of the design. Oh, you know, yes, just, uh, yeah. Giving this kind of a visual footprint and sort of a faux marquee. In fact, speaking of faux marquees, if you love the Tower of Terror in the middle of World Drive, you might want to get some pictures of it. Yeah. You're going to see something very similar that Star Wars theme replace that in the middle of World Drive. Mm -hmm. There's another construction project there where they've got an exit ramp off of World Drive. They even mark this as a proposed bridge. The end of the proposed bridge. Mm -hmm. is directly behind Lights Motor Action. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? I know, it, it ends up right there. <laughs> Go figure. If you're reading tea leaves here, folks, and you like the stunt show, gonna maybe might be time to go by and see it. But again, the upside of this whole thing is that when this is done, this is a DCA-like reboot, 
of Disney Hollywood Studios. There's going to be so much stuff here that's brand new and ridiculously immersive and and designed to deal with the very issue the park has today of really, you know, how many rides does this thing actually have? And, yeah, it's going to be tough for the next two years or so. I can't tell the amount of mail about well, why are they doing Star Wars weekends? It's like, well, because they're building Star Wars land. Exactly. Yes. You know, and it's like for the next two, two years. So, yeah. It's, so what? You're going to back poor Peter Mayhew up against a construction <laughs> fence? You know, here's he, he, here, sign stuff. He'd actually be driving the uh, the bulldozer, maybe. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Instead of hard hats, they should get, give everyone Darth Vader masks. There you go. Yeah, okay. It probably wouldn't work in the Florida heat, but it looks like there's going to be a road that almost connects Art of Animation with the studios. I mean, they're within a mile of each other, and there's going to be off-ramps off of Victory Way that go directly to the uh, the studios. It looks like part of the construction boundary for the front of the park Mm-hmm. cuts out what is right now cast member parking up in sort of the front left part of the uh, the parking lot. Is that is that your understanding that the part of the cast member parking may be sacrificed for this project? Even on the West Coast, I mean, they're building a brand new, uh, right across the street from the Team Disney Anaheim building, Disney is building a parking structure just for cast members because as they eat backstage space, mm-hmm. you know, to, to create attractions and expand things out, the cast member parking goes away. And what happens, particularly during busy times of year, is that and this is Disney cast members who work at the Magic Kingdom, Disney cast members who work at the studio. Oh, they get bust in from elsewhere? They get bust in from the Epcot parking lot, yeah. which never fills up. So they send them over there, but even long-range tail end of this project, the cast member parking issue will be addressed. In fact, the hope is that given what they're doing backstage and how many of the sound stages are being, you know, sort of retrofitted, become ride buildings or attraction, that sort of thing. But the actual, whether it's production bungalows or various shops that were used to make props or that sort of thing, those are being flattened. And supposedly, in addition to the parking structure, in fact, there is it's a giant parking structure mm-hmm. out behind what used to be feature animation. Given all the executives that have moved into the old feature animation building, Mm -hmm. that's one of the big perks of working there is that your car's out of the Florida sun, which means it isn't in the easy bake oven mode. (laughs) Supposedly, that's the other plan, that there will be a similar parking structure built for uh, cast members further on down the line that will be backstage, that there will be an access road too. And the great thing about that is... Again, the problem when you have to bus folks in, mm-hmm. and I remember talking with uh, folks who were working at downtown Disney, uh, Disney Springs, just this past holiday season, and they were making them park at Epcot because, of course, <sighs> all the construction, and it was brutal. It meant that, you know, you had to show up for work a half hour late yeah. or a half hour early just and to hope that you could get there on time. And then the end of the day, yeah. even then, you know, you get a hike to the bus and then half hour drive back to your car. That's tough for them. And that's gonna and that's gonna continue for the next couple of uh, holidays. That's really inconvenient for the cast members. It is. But that's the hard reality is what they tell cast members right from the get go. You work while others play and you know, if this is part of your job description for you to show up on time to get to the parking lot a half hour early, yeah. that's on you, not that's on shift, Disney. Yeah. All right, so Jim, one last thing before we go. If I look at the proposed map of what's happening at the studios, there's sort of a 
a zone where things aren't don't look like they're going to be touched, and then it looks like here's the zone of stuff that's that's the construction zone where anything could happen. Streets of America and the Muppets are literally on the dotted line, <laughs> like right there. It's the dividing line between East Germany and West Germany. What happens to them? Variety just had a story about this this week that the Muppets TV show started out very very strong. Yeah, I like it. Uh, it's, it's doing well. It was pretty. That was, actually like the Josh Groban episode quite a bit. Yeah, don't get me wrong. The shows themselves are well done. In fact, just this week, I was out in California for a Zootopia long lead event. By the way, that movie really looks great. Okay. Finished up the day on the Disney lot, was driven back to where the Muppets are shooting on the Disney lot. And I swear to God, Len, there's a soundstage with a giant picture of Miss Piggy on the outside, just <laughs> like you say on the TV show. And in fact, the door was open, but I behaved myself. I did not go in. Nice. But yeah, in television terms, there's a thing they call picking up the back nine. These days, typically, if you get a full season order, it's 22 episodes. So mm-hmm. what you do is you produce the first 13 episodes, and then you wait for the back nine to get picked up. And then, you you know, you get a full season. There's a number of ABC shows already that have, that have had the number of the shows cut back. There's the John Johnson thing, Blood and Oil, that was originally supposed to shoot 13 episodes or has been cut back to 10. And that's basically a death sentence that says that show's not coming back. <sighs> With the Muppets right now, they're producing 13. Nothing's been said yet about picking up the back nine. Dr. Ken, the new Friday night sitcom that's been paired with the Tim Allen sitcom, that just got a full season pickup. So everyone's kind of reading the tea leaves here to the effect of, are the Muppets going to be picked up for a full season? Part of the problem really here, Len, is the show is expensive to produce. I mean, you think about it, you got to build a set, but you have to build a set that's three feet off the ground because you have to have space underneath for the performers to stand. Right. And honestly, a lot of the Muppets' future, whether or not the Muppets' 3D attraction will continue in that spot or even anywhere, is kind of dependent on how this TV series does. Uh. The problem is it's a different age. People don't measure ratings just by how a show did in one night. There's... You know, there's, Hulu there's, and downloads and that's yeah, exactly yeah. you know that there's the plus three of how it did, then there's the metric where they measure a week after the episode aired, and also what's interesting about the Muppets is that they have a huge international audience, and so ABC is selling the show to be sold overseas, shown overseas in other markets. There were those people, you know, I've been talking with about this that suggest that they're going to hang in there for a while. They're going to see if the, the, the numbers start to tick up. The thing about the Muppets is you can't just think stateside television. You can't just think ABC because ABC doesn't think that way. The, the Muppets had a huge overseas fan base, especially England and Australia and South America. So they're looking to sell the show in those markets as well. So there's a reluctance to shut down production because of that, that coupled with the fact that the gentleman who created this particular Muppet show, Bill Prady, Mm -hmm. is the talent behind The Big Bang Theory, which was huge for CBS. And, of course, Disney and ABC would love to have Bill's next project. Yeah, There's multiple, multiple, multiple factors here that weigh in as to whether or not Disney will stay in the Muppet business. And if they stay in the Muppet business, it does make sense to keep Muppet Vision 3D going. Never mind the fact that it's the very last thing that Jim Hansen directed. I don't think think the present Disney company is uh, that interested in... Yeah, I know. But first, hardcore Muppet fans, it's still the last thing of Jim. No! (laughs) All right, real quick Uh, before we go, Jim, the other thing that's on on that uh, dotted line, Streets of America. We know Osborne Lights is going away, but what do you think long term? 
I look at the amount of money that this thing makes. I look at the amount of attendance this drives into the studios. I can't see this really glowing away forever. Construction starting in January, Sea of Construction Fences not done till 2018. Mm -hmm. Then we open Star Wars Land and try to figure out how that park operates with all of this new stuff and Toy Story Land. I wonder if Disney will keep this in its back pocket, that the Osborne lights for a year or two while they sort that out. And we've got Disney World's 50th anniversary coming up in 2021. I would bet money now that if the, the Osborne lights aren't up and running immediately again after all this construction is done, that as a special treat for the 50th anniversary year, they come back then. They'll find somewhere in the studios to put them? I've also heard from other folks within the company that for example, where those archways were at Epcot, the, the festival of light that they did for that park. The, the obsolete technology. You know, <laughs> it still galls a lot of people, Jim. <laughs> well, you know, Disney, Disney's good at galling people. What can I tell you? Also, there evidently were some discussions or explorations of possibly at least temporarily bringing the lights over to celebration. I mean, they'd love to have that kind of draw for their downtown shopping district. In fact, they do a lot of holiday programming down there. They'll do things like the artificial snow that you see on Main Street during Christmas time at Disneyland. They do that there. So to have the Osborne lights for a couple of years, mm -hmm. you know, that'd be killer. But, of course, that's not Disney-owned anymore. You know, the Disney Company right. Unincorporated celebration when they decided Michael Eisner and his architecture patronage period was over. We're out of the architecture business. This is a Disney company that's seriously invested in Christmas. And you've got the Christmas Light Fight show that continues on ABC. And, in fact, there was a plan that the big prize was going to be that whoever won the Christmas Light Fight was then going to get to decorate or design a portion of the Osborne Lights. Right. And that's still a concept they'd like to dangle in front of people. I guess we'll have to see. It's the ghost of Christmas future, Len. We never know. Look, ooh. Well, we should know in a couple of years, right? I mean, we we'll know in a couple of years. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think the Osborne Lights will be back. It's, number one, it's too popular. Number two, it makes too much money in after-hours events for and, Disney to ignore it. And if you think about the attendance, that drove into the studios during the holiday period. Could you imagine what, what the studios is going to look like next year? It's going to make post-World War II Europe <laughs> look like a good holiday choice. I got to talk to Mary Niven, who was one of the big cheeses at the Disneyland Resort during the DCA redo. And she said, yes, it's painful to work in a park that's all construction fences and that have the way you get in and around the park changing from day to day to day. But in the end, when you saw what was delivered and the quality and how happy people were yeah. with what was done. The pain was worth it. The swing back to what we started the show with. It's like, yeah, it'll be painful for some folks to think, okay, that they shut down all of the rides, they've cut down so much of the park, and now they're asking me to pay $99 to go to Club Villain. Mm -hmm. But at the end of this construction, when Star Wars Land is open and Toy Story Land is open and the two yet-to-be-named Pixar things are open, this is a brand-new park. This is an amazing yeah. theme park. Well, I actually ran through DCA in a half marathon while it was under construction, and I remember the uh, the construction walls. But if you ask me to think about DCA today, the construction stuff is furthest from my mind. I don't even remember it anymore. That's good. So, but you do remember being chased by the bulls through those narrow streets, <laughs> like, like Pamplona all over again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. On that happy note. Exactly. All right. 
You've been listening to the unofficial guide at Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show, and please tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.